You're listening to Duck and Cover. Welcome to the Duck and Cover pod, our nuclear history podcast. How you doing, Sarah? I'm pretty good, Anthony. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. So uh, what are we getting into this season? Well, I'm super excited that this season we are talking about civil defense. Ah, right. So I know you know a lot about civil defense, but can you tell our listeners what exactly it is? Sure. So a really easy working definition of civil defense is that it's a program or a series of programs designed by governments to try to keep people safe in the event of a nuclear attack. Easy peasy, right? Yeah, uh, sounds pretty straightforward, but something tells me it's not. No, of course not. Because history. Uh, so, so how did you get into civil defense? The short answer is the Jetsons. That's a pretty good short answer. What's the longer answer? Okay, the longer answer is there was a time where I was really interested in futures past. I was interested in how people were imagining the future in years past. And so I was using the Jetsons to try to figure out what 100 years in the future looked like in 1962. But... What I came around to thinking about is how people were imagining the future and imagining themselves as alive in the future. And you cannot deny the importance of the nuclear threat after World War II in American culture. And so I started thinking about how people imagine themselves surviving in the event of a nuclear war, which, by the way, people thought was really imminent right after World War II. We do not expect war. However, common prudence demands that we take all necessary measures to protect our homes, our institutions, and our way of life so that they can survive should an enemy thrust war upon us. I got into civil defense looking at the 1980s when people also thought nuclear war was really imminent. Hmm. But I got into it reading a children's book. Wait, a children's book? Yeah, a children's book, not as a child. I was an adult. But there's this British graphic novel about a middle-aged couple who really trust in the government to save them from nuclear war. And at the end of the book, which is named When the Wind Blows, they die. Wait, they die? Yeah, they die. It's a children's book, and they die. I know. Huh. Heartbreaking. Uh, okay. A little twisted. Go on. But the author was a pretty well-known guy. He wrote that famous Christmas story, Snowman. He was a big hit in Britain. His name's Raymond Briggs. And so it got me thinking, well, this really well-known children's author is writing about civil defense, and he's doing it for not only kids, but for adults. It seems like a lot of people are thinking about it. You start looking for things like nuclear fear or concerns about the future or survivability, and you find it in all sorts of places. Yeah, and we've spoken to a bunch of people this year who have found it in all sorts of places, like bunkers, like mascots, family magazines. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah, but that raises a really interesting point that I think is important for us to think about. And that's that civil defense isn't just silly stuff. It's not just a twisted children's story or, you know, some cartoon about the future or Birth the Turtle. Dum, dum. Civil defense is also pretty serious, and we owe it to people in the past to take it seriously. Because people were really afraid during the Cold War that they might be blown off the face of the planet. Yeah, you know who's done a lot of thinking about this? 
Alex Willerstein. Who's Alex? So Alex is the guy behind Nuke Map. Oh, Nuke Map, right. So that Google Maps app where you can like blow up your hometown, right? Yeah, it's pretty useful, pretty fascinating. Also kind of dark. Yeah, right. Uh, listeners, if you haven't checked it out, we will link to Nuke Map in the show notes on our website. Uh, it's a really cool thing to play around with. But he's also spent a lot of time thinking about civil defense. He's a professor of history at the Stevens Institute of Technology. And he admits that at first he thought civil defense was pretty silly. But then as he dug in a little more, he found out that it was also pretty serious. I'm a historian of nuclear weapons. And when you read histories of the Cold War and nuclear culture and all of these things, it's really common to see civil defense brought up as something to laugh at, right? It's, oh, yeah, Bert the Turtle, like, that would have worked. Or, oh, yeah, then they wanted him to get fallout shelters because this is an insidious plot. And, you know, I had read a lot of these things, but I also was, over time, getting deeper into the literature on nuclear weapons effects. I made the nuke map, and that requires getting pretty deep into a lot of equations and graphs and reading these very Cold War things, and started to feel a little bit like I understood more of what the arguments were of these Cold War policies. Separately, I was co-teaching a class with a colleague of mine, a physicist, Edward Friedman here at, at Stevens, and he he's one of these old school nuclear people. He worked for Herman Kahn at one point as a dissenting voice at the Hudson Institute. He's been doing this stuff since the 1960s. And we were co-teaching this seminar to students, and we he really wanted to do a unit on civil defense. And I thought, okay, why not, right? And so we read a lot of this material, some of the stuff from the 40s, some from the 50s, from some of the 70s, some from the 80s, and, and then some stuff from the more modern planning guides, and discussed it with a bunch of you know young, interested students. And we kind of came to the conclusion that Civil defense wasn't as silly as people made it out to be. And that also there's something even more chilling when you read through these plants. It's, it's actually more effective at communicating nuclear risks than the vision most people have in their head, which is this: everything goes white, everybody's dead. You start working through, okay, what are we going to do about water? What are you going to do about food? How are you going to spend 36 hours in a basement? Where are you going to go? What if you're not at home? How are you going to contact people? And suddenly there's this sort of transformation that takes place where you've personalized the risk communication. Aside from the fact that the technical stuff is not always as dumb as people think it is, that was the part that really made it interesting to me because I'm always interested in how do you get people to take these risks seriously and finding a way to make it personalized for them seemed to be the answer. And so for me, I got really interested around this time in thinking, wow, could you harness that? Could you take that grain of connection that comes from imagining that you're going to you know, build a shelter for yourself or something? Maybe you don't want people to actually build a shelter for themselves. What would that look like today? What would that look like if you didn't wrap all of that in this kind of Eisenhower era paternalism and all of the bad imagery of a bunch of middle-class white people reading magazines in their fallout shelter and all this kind of stuff that makes us instantly dismiss this stuff today and made a lot of people dismiss it even at the time. What would it look like if you were trying to actually get people to take this preparedness seriously and take their own agency seriously in this? So Alex really talked a lot about civil defense things happening in the 40s and 50s, 
70s and 80s, and all throughout the Cold War. And Sarah, I think we should give our listeners kind of a view of what changed in civil defense over the Cold War from a 30,000-foot view. Yeah, so I think it's really important that we map out some of this timeline for our listeners. In the United States, there's a really interesting precedent for civil de- nuclear civil defense, and that's civilian defense during World War II. On this farm in the rolling hill country of Northern Maryland, the holders rallying to the call for more food joined the growing army of victory gardeners. And this is the way that the U.S. government during World War II tried to engage people in the home front effort, tried to mobilize civilians. But... August 1945 changes all of that. The White House has just made an important announcement on the war. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war, in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. When we enter the atomic age with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, suddenly the idea of home front defense requires all sorts of new stuff, even in the United States, which was geographically isolated. So from World War II forward, different agencies in the federal government started thinking about what the needs of nuclear public safety looked like. And so by the early 1950s, we have a sort of articulated, coherent program of what's called the Federal Civil Defense Administration. This is an advisory organization that directed citizens about how they could help themselves, how they could prepare and assure their own safety. And so over the course of the 1950s, you see this agency putting out a lot of different messages as the conditions of the Cold War change, as we have the Soviet Union gets nuclear weapons, and then everybody gets thermonuclear weapons, much bigger bombs. And then by the late 50s, we've got ICBMs and different delivery devices. And throughout the 50s, civil defense is trying to keep up with that. And we have bomb shelters and then we have evacuation. Later, we have the fallout shelter craze. In all of this is kind of peak duck and cover era. But what's interesting is that by the early 1960s, actually, the years that we spent the most money on civil defense were 1961 and 1962 during the Kennedy administration, where President Kennedy had sort of a renewed interest, wanted to beef up civil defense once again, and invested quite a lot of money in doing so. But at the same time, the Berlin crisis is happening, and then the Cuban Missile Crisis a few years later. These were very tense moments in our nuclear history, and to a lot of critics at the time, it looked like civil defense was just too little, too late. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, Geopolitical tensions, international tensions died down a little bit, and in a lot of ways, nuclear fear fell off of people's radar in the, in the kind of intense way it, it had existed in the 1950s and 60s. And this continues uh, well into the 1970s. You know, we've got Vietnam, we've got a lot of social unrest in the United States, 
other concerns that people are worried about. We've also got what we call detente, right? The cooling of tensions between the Soviet Union and the U.S. Throughout the 1970s, you see a ton of treaties being signed that seem to be reducing the likelihood that these two nations would go to war in a nuclear way. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. By the end of the 1970s, you see the end of detente. Nuclear tension between the Soviet Union and the United States really starts to ramp up, in part because all those treaties they signed led to new technological advances in the weapons themselves. Things like MIRVs, which were kind of like one missile with 10 different warheads. So civil defense becomes no longer so much about protecting the American public, as about enhancing deterrence. So deterrence is really about persuading your enemy that there's no way they could win a nuclear war. And in the United States, civil defense starts to be paired with all sorts of new initiatives, specifically Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program, or the Strategic Defense Initiative. This program was about shooting ballistic missiles out of the sky as they came over from the Soviet Union. And if they could shoot a few of those missiles out of the sky, and the rest of the American public could take shelter or evacuate major cities, then maybe, just maybe, the United States could survive a nuclear war. So the thinking goes, if the U.S. could survive a nuclear war, that means it wins the nuclear war. Okay, so now that we have that sorted out, our timeline, which will be useful to work with this season, something you mentioned towards the end there, Anthony, is that we can't forget how important Cold War competition was to this whole story. Civil defense was a product of a competition between two superpowers, between the Soviet Union and the United States, also involved a lot of other countries too. But we can't forget that this is a global phenomenon. There are other countries that are also preparing for war in their own way. One of the things that had the U.S. so freaked in the 1980s was the fact that the Soviet Union might be doing civil defense better. They had their own evacuation plans. They had their own university training programs. And all sorts of cities throughout the whole country were running these huge civil defense drills. We've spoken to a few people this season who look at civil defense in other countries, Sarah. That's right. Later this season, we're going to talk to people who are experts in Swiss civil defense and Swedish civil defense, and we're going to hear more stories about the Soviet Union and the UK. And so we're going to take a really global approach to the idea of civil defense and nuclear fear and try to get a sense for how this was playing out in other places than the United States as well. All these stories do have some real common takeaways. Yeah. Technology matters a lot to the civil defense story. Right. You know, especially thinking back to the early period, you know, you have atomic weapons and then you have thermonuclear or hydrogen weapons. You've got new ways of delivering them. And then you've got, you mentioned MIRVs before. And Star Wars. And Star Wars, (laughs) right? So the technology change is really, really important here. It totally changes the scale of war over these years. So technology absolutely matters. And I see politics taking a pretty big role too, right? It's like some of these deep-seated ideologies individual action versus collective action really seem to play a role in what civil defense actually looks like. Right. And so that plays out in in sort of a partisanship way within individual countries. You know, this party kind of prioritizes this platform or this policy versus their opposition party. 
We have to consider that civil defense programs ultimately were nationally based. And so looking from nation to nation and the different politics in those countries matters as well. But you know it wasn't so nationally based, but a little international. What? Was the culture itself. And that plays a big role too. That's true. We can't forget culture. So what are you thinking of here? Well, of course, movies. Right? You've seen a bunch of those great classics from the Cold War. So here I think of some early stuff like Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe, which take different angles on the nuclear threat. Uh, the day after in the 1980s that, what, like 100 million people watched? Yeah, it was the most watched TV program in the history of TV at the time. Right. So TV and film are playing on these issues in all sorts of different ways. What else is there? Oh, I mean, civil defense is really present in the mind of a lot of musicians. Huh. Right? You have David Bowie and Bob Dylan oh, right. and Prince. They're all writing these kind of anti-nuclear anthems. That's in fact, right. in the 1980s, there's even a punk band named Civil Defense. Oh my gosh. I can't I can't imagine what kind of uh, <laughs> what kind of messaging <laughs> they were promoting. Right. Yeah, so culture absolutely matters. And one thing I didn't say, of course, is the duck and cover Bert the Turtle connection, which clearly matters to this podcast as its namesake. He's definitely a favorite of ours. Definitely a favorite of ours. And like, it's also the cultural touchstone that I think a lot of people have. If they know anything about civil defense, you know about Bert the Turtle. So all these takeaways, politics, technology, culture, I kind of see them as meeting somewhere on the home front. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at this, because one big conceptual way we can think of civil defense is... It's a way that individual people were brought into a global Cold War conflict. That happened whether they wanted to or not. And some people, let's let's remember, some people really warmly accepted government programs for civil defense. And some people really didn't. Right, some people didn't. Some, some people, people were protested. out on the streets, getting angry, getting upset. That's right. And that happened at various times over the Cold War, too. But one big way we can think about civil defense is it's a point of contact between this big geopolitical Cold War conflict and individuals. Civil defense was something that literally brought the Cold War home. a lot in store for you this season, so we hope you'll join us on future episodes of Duck and Cover. But in the meantime, this is Sarah Roby. This is Anthony Eames, signing off. We'll see you in the fallout shelter. Duck and Cover is funded through the Reinventing Civil Defense Project at the Stevens Institute of Technology, thanks to a generous grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The pod's home is Idaho State University. Our audio editor is Dylan Moon, and our web coordinator is Krista White. The pod would also like to thank Idaho State University's history department, and especially Kathy Bloodgood for all her help. Find us on the web at duckandcoverpod.home.blog and on Twitter at duckandcoverpod or email us at duckandcoverpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you in the fallout shelter.